Visions and Tones, it has been a while that I'm gone, but I'm back still alive. Welcome to episode 13. And in this episode, I'm speaking to an incredible leader, somebody that I look up to. Um, you know, you see her even when she posts stuff on social media that she's got the best interest for so many people at heart. She actually defines herself as a black woman, a mother, a sister, a professional, and she is currently serving as professor of mathematics um, and as vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And I know that many people know her as deputy mother. So um, I'm speaking to Professor Mamakhadi Paking, uh, deputy mother, and we speaking more about leadership, about activism and decolonization. You know, Prof Paking has actually achieved so much in her life such that if I am to go through her entire bio, I'm telling you, it will take almost two of these episodes. Um, but I'd really encourage you to look up, you know, her work and her achievements and me shortening this, I'm not really taking out anything out of her achievement. I really respect her and I really love her work. Um, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. Um, the end sounds a little bit abrupt, but I promise you, um, I really thanked and appreciated Prof. Paking for taking your time to share her expertise with us today. So enjoy this episode. So good afternoon, Prof. in South Africa, Cape Town, and I'm happy to speak to you, Prof. Welcome to the Visions and Tones podcast. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, Tony. Or good evening. Thanks, thanks, Prof. Um, so, Prof, obviously, I asked to speak to you more about leadership. Um, this is because I have observed uh, most of your work that you um, do, uh, not just as the principal and vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town, but how you also engage with different people on your social media platforms. The first time we have this conversation, but I always call you deputy mother, <laughs> even on your social um, uh, uh, media tweets and everywhere, I'm like, oh, deputy mother. And before we get deeper, I want to really appreciate um, the the sort of push you give to students, the support you give to students. I always got the conviction from your tweets, you know, the uh, 3 a.m. squad, what are you doing when you're sleeping, you know, um, instead of writing and why are you sleeping without a PhD? So that has really given me a great push. And I want Prof to know that you are actually challenging a lot of people due to proximity. We may not be able to thank you, but I want to thank you and say I really appreciate how you challenge us and I appreciate your leadership. Thank you very much, Tony. I'm, I'm very tired today, so it's good to hear such an affirmation. <laughs> it's all worthwhile. I can imagine. And now I'm going to get you more tired, Prof. So yeah. we, I'd love to speak leadership with Prof um, from different angles, obviously, and touch base even a bit on politics. Uh, looking mm -hmm. at the current political climate, even in South Africa, we've had uh, a lot of cases of um, protests, unrest, looting, and all sorts of things. Um, obviously, these are not just standalone issues where people want to speak about looting without putting close to the growing inequality in South Africa, issues of poverty and whatnot. From a leadership perspective, Prof, if you were to be the head of state today, or we say, let's source Prof's expertise, here is a case where would you say we should start as South Africa or even other contexts in the world that are having similar issues as what is happening currently in South Africa? Mm. I, think, I think we should start from the beginning, if I were to be head of state, mm. uh, and not just have a, the head of state there and I just come in to solve the problem. I'm not coming in as a consultant. Yeah. I'm coming in as the head of state. Yeah. I, would really, I would really change a lot of things. I mean... Um, I mean, I, I think I think I would I would want to be closer to the people, um, without without the fear that one of them can harm me, and so I would want to get rid of security around me because it also, of course, limits access. Um, 
I would create opportunity. I would need to have a strong deputy president uh, who is a serious administrator and can get on with the task because I would want to focus on um, rebuilding trust between the leadership and the citizens. That would be my big focus. And to rebuild trust, you need to come closer to the people. So, so um, connecting with people on, on TV is one thing, and, and it works for some, for some of the things, but I would also go into communities um, to connect with young people, to talk to them about what this country is about, where are we going, and why should they be, why should they care? Um, because uh, we, you know, unfortunately, the rhetoric since 1994 has been, um, uh, we will give you this, you'll get this for free, now that we are about this or that. It hasn't been, we've got a country here, it's broken, we are wounded, we're going to get on work because we all want to get to be okay. We want to, to deal with poverty. So what will that work look like? And, and to say to young people, what that work will look like in your case, if you're still in basic education, it means you push because the sooner you finish your high school, we can get you on a path to do something um, that will help you come into the, into the mainstream. So university students, I would talk about the issue that we've got, we've got limited time for them. And, and I think if that message was, was preached from 94, sort of a sense of responsibility, not, a, not a, what was preached that uh, uh, now that we are free, we're going to get houses, we're going to get whatever. And that's not to say people wouldn't get uh, accommodation. Of course, you would deal with the housing challenge, but you wouldn't make that the thing about, about a, a, a government or, or, or a political change, that political change is about getting things for free. I would say political change is about taking leadership. This country has been in the hands of other people. It's about taking leadership. It's about owning the country. And I'll talk about what does it mean to own the country? Because I don't think, I don't think many young people feel they own the country. Many young people feel the country belongs to the rich. And so when they, when they are angry about inequality, about poverty, about unemployment, they destroy this very thing that we have. Um, many of them do not realize that it's actually theirs. They, they can actually protect it. Uh, and, and there are other more powerful ways of showing your anger, I think, uh, about, about government, towards government. So I, I, would, I would preach that sense of um, ownership, uh, but of course, when you say to people, you own the country and you own its advancement, it's on you, they've got to see it in, happening. So if you are in a community, uh, for people to be asking who owns the mall, you know, I would, want to, I would want people in the community to know that these malls are owned by some of you. They are not the enemy because they own the mall, but they, they are making sure that you get employed. And then we expect them to treat you well, to pay you well, so that the community thrives. Sort of you build that sense. The cleaners are from the community. The gardeners are from the community. And they something like that, so that they don't feel like um, they have no stake. They are just people at the bottom who are, you know, who are tossed left, right, and center uh, and called on only when the, when the votes are needed. I, I think I would, I would do something like that, sort of a commitment and a community um, ownership and pride about who people are, who you are, and, and how do you see that? I mean, you, you, I sometimes wonder why is it that um, someone who lives in Alexander wouldn't, when they go into Santon, which is just close. They wouldn't throw a piece of paper on the ground in Santon. But as soon as they get to, to Alexander, they do it. But they sleep in Alexander. Why is it? It's because they don't see, they don't see uh, Alexander as, they're not proud of it. And for them to throw a piece of paper there, for them it doesn't look like uh, there's anything odd because 
everyone's doing it and nobody's willing to take leadership to say, we're going to start, we're not going to do this and so on and so forth. So I want a sense of ownership. Uh, and, and I think it would help with the issues of looting, but it will also help with the, those of us who have to know that if you have and you are in a community, um, you will never have peace unless other people are also comfortable. So you hire them, but you, you treat them well and you pay them well, then you will be at peace. People will leave you to drive your car uh, as long as they feel they are, they are treated well and they are, they are paid okay. Uh, so you don't get people coming into the community and going out. You make sure that the shops that are in, it should be some of them. And then you can give them skills if they don't know. Maybe you should come together as a, as a group of people. Invest, own this fast foods, is yours. If there's no, if there's no one who can, if, if there's no group that can have a supermarket, then it should be a government supermarket and keep building capacity. And the idea is to hand it over to the community. You know, I, I just think that uh, uh, yeah, we need a little bit of that um, uh, in, our, in, our, in our country because that will help us to have cleaner, cleaner townships, cleaner, more commitment to what we have there. And, and you teach people that if more of us make sure that the other is okay, we can all thrive. We don't have to be super wealthy. I will do away with driving Porsche cars, um, you know, I'll use products from within the country. I'll, as I said, I'll do away with security. I'll do away with multiple helpers uh, for me, simply because I'm, you know, I'm running the country. Um, you know, uh, and I do understand that sometimes one gets tired, you need a driver, um, and maybe one might have that, uh, but, but, but I would want to get closer uh, to the people. On, on, on the idea of ownership of country or owning the country prof, I believe you touched a whole lot of things that for me even speaks towards the looting that has been taking place, the burning of state infrastructure or symbols of the state. Um, can, can prof sort of extend that more? What do you think is the issue here? What is it that our people are missing apart from just the understanding of the ownership of the land? Can we say this is also tied with you know, the lack of formal education? Is it something that has to do with formal education or people just need, you know, social skills and, you know, moral education? And, and what could be the solution for us as South Africa and many other places where burning of state infrastructure sort of becomes the solution of activism or activists? You know, you know whether people did the looting because they are angry at the state or they took advantage of the situation and just started looting, or it was criminal activity. The, the point is that uh, the question that we should ask is why their expression of anger is to those things, to the things, is because they don't see these things as, them, as theirs. And so they, they take any advancement. So anything that's, that looks like advancement as the enemy uh, to the poor, because the, the understanding is that people are advancing at our expense. We, we are lagging behind. We are hungry. We are whatever. It's at our expense. So if there's an opportunity to loot, some people might have been looting. They might not even have been aware that the former president was arrested. It might just be criminal activity. Uh, they are taking advantage. There's looting time, and they can get something for free from whatever they will. Instead of standing up and saying, oh, 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 we don't know why you're doing this, but this is this is our mall. You can't do this. They don't see it as their mall. And that's why they, they they let it go or they join. So so for me, it is that. And 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 the things that trigger that kind of behavior, looting, there will be many different things over a lifetime that trigger that. I mean, we've seen these things happening, you know, um, in xenophobic attacks uh, because people saw these puzzle shops that are owned by foreign nationals, they are not ours. These are not our people. So we're going to, do you see what I mean? Because it's not ours. They didn't loot puzzle shops that were owned by local people. My view is that it's the same with the other stuff. What about state infrastructure? They see the government uh, as the enemy. You are not taking care of us. You made a promise. You know, we made, you made a promise, we vote for you, and you are not doing Whether they are right or wrong is irrelevant. The point is, there will be time when you're a leader, any good leader, if you're a leader that's worth their salt, 
there'll be many times when those whom you lead do not agree with you. Because even if it's in their interest, there'll be times when they don't agree with you. The issue is when they are angry with you and they don't agree with you, what do they do and why? I'd rather have them do something else than attack that which is meant to serve them. And so how do they know that it serves them? How do they know that it's theirs? Some people looted, they didn't know that these shops were owned by some young people in their community who, who started some, you know, bought a franchise and did something, you know. So how do we do that? So we've got to, we've got to I think we've got to change um, this mindset in our communities. What, what, what would you say, Prof, should be the role then of leaders of the social movements or these gatherings in a context that I've seen a few clips from the Black Lives Matter in the U.S. where uh, some activists were actually condemning burning or looting or, you know, uh, uh, um, at least taking that responsibility to sort of speak to the other ordinary people who are not occupying any leadership roles within the movement, but saying to them, we don't have to burn this. To what extent can we, do you see a place like South Africa, leaders in South Africa who actually champion this movement, having an impact onto the other ordinary people who are just following suit, but they're not sort of deciding the direction of the anger or the direction of, you know, the protest? Yeah, I mean, the, the Black Lives Matter is interesting because it sort of has got leadership, you know, uh, whether elected or not is irrelevant, but you can identify people who are leading it or someone who started it. Uh, the problem with, with what we see with this looting, it is almost leaderless. So leaders emerge as we go on. And we saw last week, there are people who emerged, who stopped people, who who stand around. I mean, the, the, what happened at the Maponya Mall in Soweto was interesting because the people stopped to protect Maponya Mall, but they indicated what they don't like about what's happening with Maponya Mall. To say we are protecting it uh, because it's our mall, but we don't like the fact that all the contracts in this mall are given to people outside this community. They're given to white people. When we have companies, we have secret companies, we have clean companies, we want this mall to be ours in that way, to be able to be, you know, and, and I think that's a valid, that's a valid critique um, uh, because they're saying we are protecting it, our people or whatever, but you've got to change this. If you don't change it, you will remain a target. And I think that's fair. So, so we saw leaders um, spring up everywhere. I, of course, I recorded a voice message and put it on, on my uh, UCTVC uh, Twitter page. And, and, and my point there was, was that, uh, of course, I was uh, targeting it at UCT students and staff uh, because I envisaged that some of them might be in distress, you know, they may be in case of helping and giving, reminding them of the support that we can give. But, but I was making the point that um, uh, whilst peaceful protest is sacrosanct, uh, there is no place in our society for looting, for criminal activity, for arson, and we should condemn that. You know, it, 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 for me, it really doesn't matter why, uh, why you're angry. Your anger should not bring you to that, you know. So, so I, would, I, would, I think it, uh, we need, you know, it, what we lack now in South Africa is leaders, um, people who lead, not because they are elected or appointed, people who stand uh, you know, there used to be those kinds of people during apartheid in communities who led, who they were known in the community, the said and people would listen. Now we don't. And I think it's because the, the enemy is so not clear, you know. Uh, in the past, the enemy was clear. It was apartheid, apartheid and there was laws, so you knew what you were fighting against. Now, sometimes when you raise, you become a voice of reason, you become the target. And, and, you know, it's like black people are tired of being targets. People just keep quiet, like I'd rather not say anything, um, which is a very big problem because sometimes people allow things that they know should not be happening to happen simply because they don't want to be attacked by uh, young people around in their streets because then their life is going to be hell. Uh, so, so people keep quiet because there's a... Uh, and, and, you know, yesterday I was talking to young people um, at one uh, leadership seminar, uh, saying to them, uh, they were asking me why young people are not rising to take leadership positions. 
And I said it's because leadership has become so populist. It has become a, 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 an opportunity to prove how woke you are, that um, uh, there's no principle in many people. I mean, some people do, but very few people. When you, when you lead, when you have good values, you lead, you are decisive, and people don't always agree with you, they will call you names. When they call you names, nobody will ask for evidence. People just go in. That's what social media has done. People will just call you names and others just follow. They don't say, give us examples. Give us evidence. You can't just, who said this? Has she been given an opportunity to speak up or whatever? You know, so, 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 so people avoid that because once you are labeled, then that label is a weapon against you. Uh, then it's almost like you can never do anything right. Uh, if you get labeled anti-black, homophobic, or transphobic, or xenophobic, there's nothing else you can, you can do. So people are scared to say, excuse me, that's not right. Um, and, you know, if they are, and then they can say, ah, oh, this one is anti-black. We are fighting for, for black people. Well, I'm ca calling on the behavior. I'm not calling on what you are fighting against or for. You can fight for that. But doing it this way is not, it's detrimental to the advancement of our society, you know. So, so I think there's a, there's a fear. So even people who could rise in the communities, people don't do that anymore. I mean, we see it's not only that. In many institutions, organizations, sometimes government departments, people are scared to make tough decisions. Uh, you make a tough decision, you suffer, you suffer the consequences. And often there will be no one to protect you, even when they see the benefits or the fruits of your decisions. People just keep quiet. Um, I mean, I, I hear that a lot. People say, no, Prof, just keep quiet, please. Just, just don't say anything. Just don't say anything because it's safer to do that. You know, um, people forget everything else that you're about. You can't call them out. You can't call, you can't even hold people accountable. You hold people accountable at work. They call you names. Because as long as you disagree with somebody, uh, uh, when you hold them accountable, they disagree with you, and you insist this is what we, what, then you're a bully. You can't insist on work. You can't insist on lines of responsibility. It's, it's bullying. It's being this or that. So, yeah, so people can engage. So, so it, I think this is, this is the reason why we don't see leaders um, rising to the occasion or people who should rise to the occasion but you are in times such as these to rise to the occasion. Elliot Prof, you, you spoke about how we see few people coming up to defend Maponyamo and whatnot. And I love the fact that you're raising that narrative because so many people are looking at what is happening currently in South Africa and just giving it a bad name. There's other narratives that are actually beautiful narratives of people who are protecting mm -hmm. these infrastructures that are actually not coming out. Today I saw um, a post on, on, on Facebook and somebody just said, you know, beautiful angels showed up to help clean a certain warehouse, which it didn't belong to them, but they understood that this warehouse does great work in the community. So, so thanks for bringing that narrative. I feel like people need to understand that, you know, a single story is not healthy. We need to sort of bring the, the balance between the good and the bad, but yet at the same time push towards, you know, being a healthy community, doing the good um, uh, for everyone. So thanks for that, Prof. You touched base on how today, if you speak out against people, you know, or, or rather how it is difficult to make tough decisions. And I love that because I looked at you and at some point I was afraid because it's like, I love the pity mother, but I wonder how she's going to, you know, uh, approach the Fismasful movement, which was actually also taking place as part of you know, a situation which I saw Prof having to take a tough decision during, you know, even those times. Can Prof take us through your sort of leadership ethos, your principles, and how you reconcile being a person who wants to, 
serve the poor and the deserving. But at the same time, on the other hand, there's a neoliberal agenda which sort of seems to be taking place. How do you reconcile what could be your principles and something which seems to or is viewed to be contrary to your principles? Yeah, I mean, I, I when it comes to fees must fall and roads must fall, I, you know, I wasn't against. Actually, I went to the fees must fall much in the union buildings back in twenty, end of twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen. I can't remember. Um, because I mean, it was interesting that the the uh, roads must fall and fees must fall happened at that time because. It was just three years before the roads must fall in 2012, when there were articles in the paper and a concern in the country that the young people of South Africa are apathetic, um, that you know they don't show interest, they're not engaging, they're not whatever. I mean, it was it was interesting. They were even called lots of names. I mean, it's interesting. Those names have sort of fizzled. They were called the Born Freeze, the Mandela Generation, Black Diamonds. You know, the people were coming up with all these names of uh, to describe uh, uh, young black people uh, around 2012, 2013. And then 20, when 2015 happened and the Rose Must Fall movements started, I mean, people were shocked. And... Um, and, and, and instead of saying, wow, this is uh, uh, the critique that we, or the engagement that we were expecting students to have, people started uh, 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 challenging students. No, you, you, you should, you should uh, engage this way or not this way. We, the activists of the 76 and 80s, what, 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 I thought that was inappropriate. Because I thought the student protests at that time, the Foley's movement, the, the, the protest that they led was, was profoundly about a, a political change, you know, they, they, and they were not happening just in isolation. They were part of a larger challenge to the ruling elite because uh, they, even though they were born after 94, uh, they were seeing uh, their parents who tell them about what happened in apartheid, who grew up in poverty, and, uh, and, and they looked, what their parents told them, they saw it happening to them. White privilege, they were confronting poverty and inequality, they were seeing corruption, and, and that, that wasn't satisfactory. And so that's, that's why they pushed, they pushed back, in my view. Um, at, at the fees must fall. I mean, it started with roads must fall and then the fees must fall. So, so of course, the roads must fall was about symbolisms that they started asking themselves. Uh, who are we in this space? Our parents say we got we got democracy, we got freedom. But why is this place so unwelcoming? Why are we seeing all these statues that don't represent us? Where where is us in this university? And that's why they found the artwork offensive. They found the the statues offensive. They found the names of buildings and structures uh, offensive. It's because. The students were asking important questions about themselves in this democracy, and 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 so they were rejecting this this new South Africa, uh, uh, given how things haven't changed. That the things have changed only for the ruling elite, and not for people on the ground. So so so, but but of course it can be argued that uh, the story of South Africa, of course, is it's the story of political activism. So in many ways, it was a matter of time before students. Uh, 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 came up to rose up against um, against what was happening in the country. The fact that there's still poverty, inequality, and and unemployment. So so I I thought and and with fees must fall. By the way, the, when it broke, it was that was the first year where the proposed fee increments by by uh, some universities certainly uh, vets and UCT the proposed increment. Uh, it was 12%. The other universities might have been lower, but it was the first time that it was double-digit numbers. Uh, higher than inflation. I think it might have been double or close to that inflation. And so that's when the, the students felt enough is enough. 
And if you think about it, it was untenable because the fees kept increasing uh, whilst the, 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 you know, unemployment was increasing and the inequality gap was increasing. And so many of them felt that, um, they, you know, they, they will never be able to afford because they didn't qualify for NSFAS. You know, the, the upper bound at that time was, was very low. And so they didn't qualify. So in a way, there was, and if you recall in 2016, uh, when 2015, 2016, when the fees must fall uh, started, there was a lot of support across uh, the country because people um, acknowledged that. And, um, and in many ways, um, the, 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 that protest wasn't uh, characterized by uh, largely across the board by, you know, destruction of, 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 of property. It's only later that the UKZN library was bent down, but, but it was mainly focused on, um, let's decolonize our campuses. It was also a critique, it was a critique of higher education, uh, the curriculum, it was also a critique of the reconciliation project, the South African Re- reconciliation project, if you like, like that the students felt that, you, you know, you talk about reconciliation, but actually there's no reconciliation here. Look at us and look at the white uh, people, young people who are our age. Things are different. They come into the university, they still feel more comfortable than we are, and we are supposed to assimilate to being like them because if we don't, then we will never succeed because this this higher education space is structured uh, around their culture, Western ways of being. And so they were challenging that. We can't afford to pay. The university look, looks like the West and we've got to assimilate into that. And so they were asking those critical questions. And I think it was, it was time to ask those critical questions. Um, and and I, I felt that, and I remember talking about fees must fall at some stage and saying um, uh, to adults, uh, some in business, some in higher education, that rather than standing on a side and critiquing the way the protest is unfolding, Perhaps we should bring ourselves to understanding um, this um, uh, new activism and to ask ourselves why, why are students uh, um, going about their activism in this way? And I said to them, it's because, you know, the, 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 the students have come to a stage where they, they, they realize that um, if you're poor, you're going to lose anyway. Um, you, 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 so, so you've got you've got nothing to lose if you protest this way. Because as it went on, it became more and more aggressive. At first, it wasn't, but it, it became more and more aggressive. And I felt that what they're fight, fighting for is is a good cause. But students and the poor, because it wasn't just a fight uh, uh, by students. It was also remember the in outsourced workers. So they had figured out that actually, you have nothing to lose. You know, that's why the vandalism took over um, uh, after the more thoughtful interventions of the activists, um, the, the, the vandalism took over. And, and I would say to adults, even though the vandalism is unacceptable and, and in the end will affect the poor more than it will affect other people. If we just condemn it, we will not win. We've got to understand why it is happening, why why do the protesting students feel this way? And I think they felt that way because they realized that they've got nothing to lose. They've got nothing to lose, nothing to gain. And so they might as well uh, go vandalizing. And this is when people, you see that the, the universities are not theirs. They are owned by other people. They have to assimilate. It's again, that thing of the, of the ownership. We are just the chaff at the bottom. So you increase fees, everyone else who's on top will afford and we must come uh, running around. And some universities uh, which give us scholarships, it's almost like they're doing us a favor. And, and because they are giving you a scholarship, you also can't ask questions. You must just assimilate, get your degree and get out. So, so it, was a, it was a saying, and they were saying, look at our parents. Our parents are working. They don't get the same benefits. Are, it's, it's, it's really uh, used labor. Uh, they are cleaning, they are with us in the university all the time, with other people in the university all the time, but their children can't afford to come and study at the very university that they've been cleaning for 15 years. Uh, but an academic who came yesterday 
from a foreign country in Europe can come in today, their children's fees will be covered tomorrow. And they were saying, but this is not acceptable. These people are paid less, they work harder, they don't have any benefit from being in this space. And they look like us. So it's an, so they were challenging um, a lot of things. And, and it's unfortunate that, um, uh, again, we oftentimes we just focus on the on how people challenge the thing rather than saying, but why is it happening? Because I think the challenge was much wider than, than, than just fees. It was really about the inequality in our country because it was showing, it was showing in the university that the missing middle can afford once you raise the, 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 the fees to that level. Mm. And I can imagine, Prof, with the arguments that you raised to say, let's understand, you probably were faced with a whole lot of opposition and probably called names uh, at some point, uh, also criticized for uh, supporting anarchy, because sometimes I feel like there's, there's also that kind of a critique that people raise when you ask them to understand why people are angry. They just want to silence you by criticizing you harshly. How, how do you deal with such as a leader and and also, I mean, as a woman, and not just a woman, but a black woman in a space such as UCT, because we understand that as a leading university, not just in South Africa, but also in Africa, everybody's watching. And, and yeah, how, how do you deal with such kind of opposition in any forms of microaggression as, as a leader? So how do I have to learn? How can I learn? Or how can another black woman learn from, you know, your ways of doing things? I mean, you know, if it's public, it's in the newspapers, on Twitter, I've learned, I have had to learn not to get into the mud with a pig. Because oh. at the end of the day, I will get dirty and the pig will be happy. So uh, now I just, I just watch. Uh, I, don't, I don't engage. Um, do I mean, do I, do, am I saying they are not hateful? They are hateful but I, I simply don't engage because sometimes people want mileage by taking you on because you are doing a good job. And when you, given the country that we are in right now, uh, you know, there's, it's like when you do a good job, you hold people accountable, uh, especially when you are a black person. Uh, there's always two sides pulling you because when you lead uh, 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 when yours is a value-based leadership, you lead on principle. There'll be times when you don't agree with people on the one side. There'll be times when you don't agree with people on the other side. And so at any one time, you are taken on by this side or by that side. And, and uh, 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 the bad thing, of course, is when if these two sides come together to take you on, which is very possible, you run that risk all the time. Uh, and someone once said to me when I took office that I should to, to take a side uh, because that side will protect me when things are bad. And I can't do that. I'm here for the institution. You know, when you lead, you're leading an institution. Some of the decisions are not the decisions that I will make personally, uh, but I make because they're in the interest of the institution. They are not my politics but they're in the interest of the institution. I look at many other things. I, I check the pros and cons for the institution. And, and doing that sometimes means that I will be in harm's way and I will be called names. And I, 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 I often say that's okay um, because people know when they are accusing you uh, unfairly. Um, and, and one day when you are gone, um, there'll be people who say you are ahead of your time. I mean, it's fascinating, Tony, that, uh, you know, we lost Professor Mayosi in 2018, 27 days after I took office. When I intervened, when I intervened in Professor Mayosi's situation to try to create a position that did not exist, to create a pro-vice chancellorship that didn't exist, he was under so much attack. But once he died, nobody, Nobody stood and say, yeah, I was attacking him. Uh, people were just surprised that he, he was on medication for depression. But nobody, nobody, everybody pretended as if they loved him, 
even people who I saw with my eyes uh, challenging it. And people think it's easy. So, so I am, I'm learning to tell some people in my leadership to tell them what's going on with me. Uh, if I feel safe to become vulnerable and, and say, I am not well. And uh, so that people, people are aware because people think when, 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 I mean, some people had written me emails, by the way, wanting me to discipline him, to do this. And it was fascinating that as soon as he passed on, oh, they were in my UCS camp. And of course, what do you do as a leader? You just, you just keep quiet. And then, of course, what did they do? Some of them accused me. I came here in the university just 18 months before he died. I was the first person to try to craft a new position that didn't exist for him. I was trying to perform a miracle within my first month in office. And so I was going through all the hoops and whatever. I created a position. I met with his leadership team, told them we, they supported me. We had a plan and we had a plan that this is going to kick in. And people say, you know, it is me. Suddenly it is me who made him die. Wow. This is the thing that, and I say, this is what they're going to do the day I die. These very people who are loud in criticizing me, calling me a B-I-T-C-H, calling me a B-U-L-L-Y, they are the very same people who will want to be famous, saying that they were supporting me, or she was a visionary, or she was this, or she was that. Um, and, and it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's. It's very unfortunate. So, but as a leader, you have to focus on what you are there for. You are there for the institution, not for yourself. Uh, don't respond. Often, it's not about you. It's about the position. You are in the office. They, are target, they will target whoever gets into that office, especially if they're a black woman. If you're a black woman, you'll be targeted most because it seems as if the agenda also is to prove that black women can't lead so the more you rubbish, the more you bring down, the more you, 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 you strengthen that narrative that black women can lead, uh, that when things get tough, they get out. Uh, so so, so you've, got to, you've got to stay on and see uh, and not say, not get into the mud and focus on what needs to be done. So, so I, I, that would be my advice, really. We, we will ask for, for Mama. Deputy Mother, to give us a signal so that we know. <laughs> My sons keep saying that, that, that when I'm dead and people are there, they will say, give us a signal. Actually, one of them says, I'm going to out them. You see, these people who are giving you trouble, I'm going to say to them, so-and-so, get out, so-and-so, get out. <laughs> they should, they should get up, get out, bro. Now that we're speaking about, you know, the same people that we may have to call out and say, uh, 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 mama give us a signal against these kind of people. How do you deal with people then, Prof, that you, you can sense that they claim to love you, they claim to support you, but in the corners they're actually doing something completely different? Oh, those are many. Um, I, don't, I don't deal with them. Some actually, I mean, especially young people, would scream at me in their toy toy, they would stand up and say, you are useless, you are what, 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 what. And three days later, I would be walking onto campus, the very same person who was saying I'm useless, da, 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 will run to me and want a picture. And then I'll take it. And then they put on social media and then my son says, what is this? Nonsense. This is the very person who was there. And I say, it's not, it's her problem. I deliberately teach myself never to remember the names and the faces of, especially young people, students at UCT in particular, not to remember their faces, the ones who are nasty to me, uh, because it is going to make me an evil person. So I, I, I don't, I do this work with the assumption that everyone who comes to me, the majority of them, are not really interested in supporting me. They're interested in what I have, what they can get from me. And and if I can give it, I'll give it. But if I can't, I won't. So I won't stretch myself and do things that I don't want to do. I'll do things that I want to do. So so people do that routinely. And I I try, I mean, the, the hilarious thing is that I've got notes, by the way, 
that uh, when when the student who was brutally murdered at the post office, raped and murdered, blah, blah, and the students were angry, I mean, even though the student was raped and murdered off campus, they were angry, they were angry at me, they were shouting, and I sat down and listened to all the things that they were saying. The student speaks and whatever, 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 they tell me, I'm what, what, what. When they finish, another one comes, they keep taking turns. I'm sitting down, like flat on the floor, because I realized this is going to go for a long time. That student comes to me and taps me. When I look out, it's the student who was speaking. She gives me a piece of paper in my hand. I take it and I'm thinking, wow, it's probably written that same of gibberish she's been saying for me to read. I open it and she had written, Prof, don't worry, we love you. This is not about you. I'm sorry that we have to do this. So some of what, what they do, you know, out there is a show. It's a show. And I happen to be an actor in the show. As a, what can I say? Yeah, subject in the show. And so they're doing it for other people because whilst they're doing that, they're taking their live streaming on social media so that the world can see what they're doing, so that they can be known as woke, as the most revolutionary. And... And she's a woman, she's a girl, she's just told me how useless I am and what, what, what. And I just said, okay, I listen. And I think she felt bad because she knows how I would rise for my students. I would rise, I would go miles to make sure that the students uh, at UCT get the support that they need. Um, it, you know, it, it's in extraordinary circumstances where I'm not able to help, but I, I really, really do what I can. And um, and so even if they do that, they know that I'll still, I'll still come. If they said they're falling into a hole, I'll still come and I'll do everything to rescue them, right? So I've learned to accept that sometimes young people want a show. Unfortunately, in our continent, to be regarded as revolutionary and to, to have an opportunity to go up the political ladder, you must be rude. Mm. You must be rude to the people who lead. Mm. The more rude you are, the more you get seen as a leader because you are brave. And then you might get a job in parliament or in some whatever the people might, people around might vote for you so that you can. So I don't mind, I'll take it. Uh, uh, but of course, my mental health is also important. True. And when, when time comes, I do, when, when it's opportune, I do talk about my mental health. Uh, and I do make them aware that I was never on depression and anxiety med medication until I came to this university. And now I am. And my dosage keeps increasing uh, because that's how, how it is here. Uh, and, and people say, why, why, why don't you leave? Why should I leave? The world must change. The world must change. So as long as there's treatment and I can manage it, I must, I'm going to sit here and do the work. All right? Uh, not for me, for the university, for my children and my children's children and all the young people who have an opportunity to come study here. I'm not going to create, to contribute to a narrative that says Black African women can never lead. And so, so you know, I crumble under pressure and I go. As long as I can do it, I'm going to stand here. Uh, but people should know that leaders are just as human as they are. Uh, and, and, but, you know, so we are in a show. I'm a subject in a show. Yeah. I'm sure, Prof, another thing, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really should break your heart that one, at one minute, a, a person can be able to flip-flop so quickly like that, call your name mm -hmm. the next minute, try to sweet-talk you and whatnot. And, and I'm also thinking about other thing, if you can speak, to us through this, how you deal with um, if you if you try to help someone because you see the people need help but they reject your help. What what or maybe let me just put it as an open question. What what are the other things that sort of breaks your heart about most the young people when you see that they need help and you offer them help and they don't sort of respond to you in a, in a positive way. I mean, you know, you people have a right to accept or reject whatever is offered to them, help, whatever that help is. So I, I respect their decision, but I always make them aware that if you ever change your mind, don't hesitate to come to me, mm. you know? Yeah, because people have a right. So I, I won't force them. I just, I just leave them. 
and and sometimes people come back and and then they accept the help um, um but there are times when people don't they move on mm. you know Prof, can you can we can we go back a little bit towards touching the political leadership and and also tying it up with your profession currently? If we look at our education, our curriculum, Fismas Fall was speaking about decolonization, and I remember at some point there's a there's a, a plenary that we were part of last year. I think it was uh, Africa Day, if I'm not mistaken, and I heard you speaking about decolonization and speaking more about how the more we ch- we try to chase the Western-centric sort of principles, the more we're not going to catch up, but we need to think about a system that works for Africans in Africa. Can you please expand for us looking at the the curriculum in South Africa? Firstly, uh, the curriculum in South Africa, does it fit the the direction which we're taking, the neoliberal capitalistic direction, whatever one wants, wants to call it? And if we are to change it, apart from what students are calling for, but from a leadership perspective, because I believe you might be having a, a full view of some of the shortfalls students might be having, especially maybe from Fismas Fall, what would you change? What would you propose? So the, the, the decolonization project, by the way, is not just an African project, mm. a worldwide project. So the vice chancellors at UCL, LSE, Yale, uh, engage on these things as much as we do here in South Africa. Um, because, because it's about the voices that are not represented in the academy today. Um, at the moment, we have a dominant of, of the Western voice and uh, the Western narrative is constructed as the narrative, as the scientific narrative. There's scientific it's, this is the truth. And, and, and my argument with decolonization, get on with the inter- decolonization project, is that actually the academy is poorer without other knowledge systems, much poorer. And, and probably it explains why the world is where it is right now. Because there are so many things we don't have answers to. The pandemic is teaching us that, global warming is teaching us that, GBV, there are so many things that we, we don't have answers to. So if really we, we were not, we didn't suffer from the poverty of knowledge, uh, maybe we would have all these solutions. But I think we, we have ignored uh, other knowledge systems uh, to our detriment. We're not even asking why, why is it that China managed to manage the pandemic uh, better than other countries. Uh, that, because the Eastern knowledge system, the Asian knowledge is not, there isn't an interaction with, with us. So we are depending on, on, on Western knowledge as the knowledge. And so I think we are, we are impoverished for that. Uh, decolonization is not about wiping out one knowledge system and replacing it with the other. It's about creating space for other knowledge systems, not only the African, but other knowledge systems, because there is something that we will learn from Eastern, Asian, and so on. Um, so so, so it, is, it is that space. And I think what that does, it will also make uh, other knowledges to grow. I mean, the reason why we've got uh, uh, scientific knowledge having grown so much in English is because it's been used. It's, it's, you know, it, it grows because out of use. Uh, 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 these concepts grow in, in, in a particular way. So if we, and we, there's times where uh, uh, theories are meshed and, and you, get, you get other things growing. So you get people critiquing a theory, other people taking it up, other people uh, merging it with others. And when we decolonize, it's not like it's evangelism. Everyone will agree with this knowledge system, but you are making it available. You are saying engage with it. The more they engage with it, the more it will grow. Because if they critique it, those who believe in it will come and grow it and show and answer the questions that people are asking. And then it grows. But as it grows, it helps the other knowledge because other people will take it and merge it with others. And then we'll have um, something that we've never had before. Um, and, and, I, and so I think, I think there's, a, there's a limitation. Um, I, I mean, 
we at UCT, the, the decolonization project is on. Um, and it's not just about the curriculum, by the way. It's also about, it's about what we teach, how we teach, uh, who teaches, you know, and, and, and who feels, you know, who the space represents. And, and ultimately, my view is that the, the ideal situation is that everyone comes into the space and feels something new about the space. Even the African learner comes. It might be that because the university is in Africa, they, 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 they don't get a lot that's new, but they should get something new because you want it to be a space that is diverse and inclusive so that everyone grows. So, so, so it is, and in terms of what we teach, how we teach, those things are important. I mean, it, you, you can never, um, if we don't do that, we'll continue to valorize only uh, Western education. Um, uh, Western knowledge, and it's important that we open. And, and by valorizing only one kind of knowledge, we are impoverishing the, the knowledge uh, enterprise altogether. Mm-hmm. How, how, how can Prof take this now towards the economy, since there's, there's been this you know, close tie between higher education and training with you know, the economy, issues of employment, and, and whether our curriculum does prepare us you know, to... And, and to what extent does it pre- prepare us to be global competitors? And to what extent does it also allow South African or even African students to be employable, even in, in, in the Northern, you know, spheres? You see, the, as, as I said, the decolonization project is not only African, it's for everyone. African knowledge uh, and or, or, or whatever, if you study in South Africa, you should be able, in my view, to hold your own anywhere in the world. The idea is not that you are trained only for your context. You are trained for the world. But that challenge should apply to an Indian student or the student who's studying in India or Australia or the US or the UK. It should be the same. Um, and so... Uh, this opening up the uh, 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 scientific knowledge or uh, the knowledge space in the academy is, is for, for everyone. How does it make us employable? You know, my, my argument about university education is that it would be, it's a very limiting idea to think that university education, we are doing this just to get our students, our graduate employed. It's very limited. It's not just about employment. Uh, actually, a good higher education needs to also get you into a space where you can create new jobs. You should be able to create new jobs, create new spaces, grow this thing. And and the truth of the matter is that over the years, it has happened. It's just that when it happens, people don't stop and say, hey, I'm a graduate, and this is how it happened. But, you know, university education gives you so much confidence. It gives you tools, besides the technical skills and the scientific knowledge it gives you, it should give you values, attitudes, and skills to to identify where the gap is, to open it up, to grab opportunities, to run with them. Any graduate who just stands and just waits for a job, I think it's poor education that does that. We've got to get to a stage where uh, our graduates have to be much more um, enterprising than that. Uh, it can it cannot be otherwise we we are going backwards it should also be that i mean the world of work is changing and and the world of work is changing because people are doing things differently uh, the person who started a company that hires people from all over the world and matches those skills with other companies elsewhere and you can do it whilst you're at home is a human it, it's that jo- that kind of operation wasn't set up by god it was set up by a human who is like you, is a graduate who thought about, oh, now that we've got this kind of technology, we can actually do this on that or that. Or we can develop this kind of technology and be able to do this or that. And my, my view is that this will grow. This will grow. We can see how other, the professions that are at risk right now. I mean, it's no longer so, you know, to, to, journalists are having so much competition because everyone is a journalist. 
Yeah. People publish the news before it breaks. They gone are the days that some newspaper will break the news. They, someone breaks it on social media before you even come up with your headline. And then you've got a problem of having to come in a slant of this and that. And political parties hire those people who break the news on this on social media because they do it well, they do it on time, they do it, and they've got following. You know, who thought having followers on social media would be anything to but it's capital. Mm. True. Everybody, every company wants those people. They no longer want models anymore. They want the people who've got following. And some of those people who have got following, it's not because they, they look better like models used to do and they got the jobs that way. It's because they either sense of humor or whatever that people follow them for some reason or other and brands realize you can, you can use them. Some of those people are medical doctors. They didn't even study to do that. Some of those people are accountants, you know. So it's a whole lot of people who, so there's a whole lot of ways to, to make money. Uh, how we buy music now, how we make music now, that it wasn't like that 15 years ago. And, and these things keep growing. So it's the jobs created by humans. And I'm saying the graduates will do that as well. And, and that it doesn't matter whether you come from the West East or whatever. The thing about knowledge is that knowledge is easy today. You can get access to it. So higher education equips you with other things, like a, a worldwide network. I say to my students, you come here, it gives you network that you would never had if you had stayed at home and not come to university. You get connected to people from everywhere all socioeconomic classes from different places and sometimes different world, different countries. It, it gives you time and space whilst you're studying your degree. You've got free Wi-Fi. You can do amazing things whilst you are here. You can explore uh, different ideas. There are opportunities here for entrepreneurship. What, what I mean, outside your, your, it gives you an opportunity to be a leader without your parents thinking that you're not with it. Your brother is the one who must go. You can go to Kailicha and lead a group and do some community project. Do, do you know what I mean? It gives you that space where you can be an adult and decide, do I still want to be a Christian or do I want to convert to Islam? It's your choice. Your parents are not here. You make tough decisions. And then it gives you confidence. You get out of here, you've led with whatever. If you've, if you've used all the opportunities that are here, you can get out there and start something. And we see many students who, who graduate now, they've never worked, but they're making a lot of money. You know, and, and it's not that they're doing it on social media only. They run all sorts of things. So, so I, I think decolonizing will make the students even relevant for their own context not only for the context in the West. They can function in the West, but they can also get home. And suddenly they see the water problem at home differently from how they saw it before they went to university. You know? Thanks. Just one last question. You said something there that, you know, I felt it was intriguing to say university space allow us to network. And I'm thinking if you can just maybe talk this through as a last thing, maybe second last thing. Uh, COVID is pushing us into online learning. Uh, um, what fears would you say you have then about online learning and the fact that networking might also become a challenge uh, uh, also due to availabilities of resources, looking at a place like South Africa where data to connect online uh, via Zoom, like scholarly, it might be a challenge. Yes, you've got platforms like LinkedIn and social media and whatnot, but what, what can you say about you know, online learning in the future? Mm. I mean, I want to talk about the, the, the potential, the, the possibilities. I mean, it's created um, a new challenge. How do you develop relationships online without having seen people? So, so people are learning to do that because you are in class and you don't know people. How do you how do, you do that? But the, the downside, of course, is that uh, our students are not getting personal interaction with the uh, face-to-face -face interaction, which, which teaches you certain things about other people, you know, to interpret body language, you know, and, 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 and it, it just gives you another perspective on the person as you, as you do that. Um, COVID has also, is also denying our students an opportunity to interact with students from all over the world. I mean, semester study abroad has stopped. Students had to go home. We don't have any students who are joining us this year. Whereas with student semester study abroad, we had students, it gave students an opportunity to interact with other students from 
elsewhere in the world. Now those possibilities are limited. The students from the continent, whatever, who now are interacting, and and that's limited. I think that's a huge limitation. Um, um, and then there's a there's I mean as much as online teaches you to take responsibility for your own learning. I mean you've got to structure it. You've got to decide depending on how it's structured. Um, the classroom. The classrooms, the classroom forces you to think on your feet. I mean, when you're in a class of a hundred people and um, there's a question to be, you know, it's question time or there's, you know, you there's a lot of other people, you know, so the issues of stage fright, whatever, you've got to stand up and speak in front of hundred people. Online, it's easy not to see them because cameras are off. You can imagine that there's nobody and you can go, go on. So it, we might end up with people who are scared of other humans that they just want to see people on screen because they get intimidated by being surrounded by a lot of people. Uh, so, so, so there's a, there, there are pros and cons. Um, it might also be limiting uh, the kind of learning that students uh, can get because face-to-face enables other kinds of engagements that uh, are not so easy to happen online because online the lecturer might mute you all uh, in class we can mute you you know you you say your say um, <laughs> students are not getting the experience of uh, of protest of activism that's face to face that uh, that they go to the admin building to protest and and whatever i mean students who started last year have no idea what that feels like, the picket line, like the real picket line. Uh, they might see it once in a while here and there, whatever. But so there's, there's and, and as much as it's difficult, it's, it's actually a learning space. The picket line is the learning space because students learn. They, first of all, some of them make friends there while they are singing to go into it. Some of them get streetwise. They realize there's a protest I've got a test in two days. Where do I go? I was here during the day at the protest. At night, I'm not going there. I'm going to study because it might just end. And then the, te- the test still come. They have to make those quick decisions and, and be separate, separate them from their friends, to, themselves from their friends to do that. You know, it, it teaches them things. They, they are not on the basketball together, court together. Uh, it's a learning space that. It's a learning space. Uh, they are not um, experiencing being on campus and being bombarded by uh, different ideas and them having to choose where to go. Uh, whether it's during Israel Apartheid Week or whatever contestation and people are vying for them, for their uh, support, uh, whether they say at one, none of the two of you or they choose one or the other, or, or, or it triggers them to go and read something online to get to understand what the contestation is about. So we're missing all of that um, uh, in face-to-face. Prof, I really want to thank you so much for your time. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye, Tony.